0: Thanks, Dave, for reading God's word for us, and for always making everyone feel welcome. Uh, I love that. Well, my name's Bill Gorman, and I'm the, uh, the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus, and thank you for joining us this morning. Um, again, uh, to all the moms, Happy Mother's Day. We're so glad that you're here with us this morning, and uh, especially if you're a first-time guest, I just want to extend a special welcome to you and just say thank you for for coming this morning, for being with us, and we're so glad that you're here. Um, Well, as we prepare to look at this passage that Dave has just read for us, um, we'd love to pray and ask uh, for God's help in understanding it and and applying it in our lives. And so let's pause and and do that right now. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you... um, I, and I pray this almost every week, but I, it's true. I'm so thankful that you have revealed yourself to us in the gift of your word, that you have not left us um, to wonder what you are like or to wonder what you think, um, but that you have given us this treasure that is the Bible, that is your word. And uh, I pray that as a congregation, we would love it, that we would treasure it, not because of of just the pages or the ink or the words, but because of who it points to, this living, active God of the universe, who is revealed supremely in Jesus. And I pray that as we look at this passage this morning, that we would see Jesus, that we would be transformed by seeing him in, in new and fresh ways in the book of Hebrews this morning. We pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen. Well, when uh, I think about uh, Mother's Day and, and Father's Day, one of the things I'm most thankful for, for my parents, especially now as an adult, is the discipline um, that they had in my life that they didn't just let me uh, get away uh, with anything um, or or being a selfish person but that they that they pushed and they prodded and they challenged. Um, I'm so thankful for the discipline in, in their, uh, that they have provided in my lives. And now, as the, the dad of a five-month-old baby, Lucy is five months old today, um, when I think about my parents, and I, I'm just hoping that I can do uh, as good a job raising her uh, as my parents did of raising me, that I can train and instruct her um, as my parents did me. And, and I'm so thankful, again, that my parents didn't let me uh, get away always um, with what my, my bad behavior, that they called that out, that they, that they curbed willful defiance, that they were careful to raise us um, in that way and do it in a loving way. Um, but the question for us this morning, as we look at a passage like the one that Dave just read for us, is does God ever do that with us? Um, does God ever take the role of, of the parent who disciplines their children? And, and you know, is he, is he ever one to, to ground us, give us time out? Um, does God ever do that to us? One of my favorite uh, books that I've, that I've ever read, there's a few books in your life maybe that have been formative. One of the books that have, was that for me is a book called A Severe Mercy uh, by Sheldon Van Aken. And it's a, it's a true story of Sheldon and the love uh, of his life, a woman named Davy. And when Sheldon and Davy met, they, they fall in love and they are completely enthralled with one another and they get married and their goal is to just be together for their entire life. They talk about building this shining barrier around their marriage. Their dream is to get on a sailboat and sail around the world, just live on the sailboat together um, for their entire lives, that nothing would come between them uh, and their marriage. They're, they're just supremely wrapped up in one another. Their home becomes this temple to each other, and they vowed to never experience anything that, they couldn't, that the other one couldn't share. But then, in the story, something happens. Davy becomes a Christian, and eventually Sheldon does also but with less conviction. They actually spend time at Oxford, and and they meet C.S. Lewis, and, and Lewis actually helps nurture them in their faith. And Davy's faith just comes alive. And while she continues to love her husband, Sheldon, she's found a new and better love in Christ. And Sheldon, over a period of years, grows resentful. And by his own confession, he was on a pathway either to hate Davy or to hate God or both. And then Davy, full of life and love and faith, dies at age 40. Listen to what Sheldon writes about her death. It was death, Davy's death, that was a severe mercy. That death was so full of suffering for us both, a suffering that still overwhelms my life. And yet it was a severe mercy, a mercy as severe as death, and a severity as merciful as love. Sheldon looked at her death as an act of God's severe mercy. Have you ever thought about that? Would you ever be able to say that? As someone's death is an act of a severe mercy? Severe? Yes, absolutely. Was it painful? Absolutely. That's exactly how Sheldon describes it. But for in her death, he moved away from his hate, and he found the same kind of love that Davy had, with her God. So the question was, in that moment, was God disciplining him? Does, does God ever work like that? Is his mercy ever severe? D- does he ever allow or even put things into our lives that are hard, that, that hurt, that does he ever give us sleepless nights for our own good? When we think about that question, I think there are two unhelpful and inaccurate extremes we can gravitate to. And the, the first one is that, that God is out there, that he only wants to smite us, that that is his, that his goal, that he's just looking for any excuse that he can, that he can make our lives miserable. I think this um, classic, I've showed this before, but it's just great. I think this is a classic cartoon that I think captures um, this moment. This is God at his computer, Gary Lifeson, Fireside, classic. And, and he's got, you see the piano hovering over the guy there, and the, you can't see it, but on the keyboard his, his finger is over the, a key that says smite. Um, so he's got the, you know, the smite key ready to go. Is this kind of how God exists with us? Just waiting for an opportunity to press the smite key on his computer and, and crush us. And, and this, is, this is not at all the picture that we get in the Bible. In fact, this is probably closer to more of an Eastern religious view of, a, of an impersonal view of karma that, that just we get back what we um, sort of have given But it's not at all like the biblical, personal God revealed in the Scriptures. Now, now the other extreme uh, is that God is is either absent or or just there for the good things. That God is more like a a grandma or a grandpa who, who never really challenges and just kind of gives treats. But could it be that God also takes the role of a loving parent? That there are times when he allows pain in our lives, even puts pain in our lives. And I want to say right here from the beginning, so that you don't misunderstand, there is so much that we don't understand about how and why we suffer. Massive amounts of suffering is in many ways very mysterious. And I don't want us to miss this. That suffering is is way more mysterious than than we as Christians sometimes make it. And I feel like some of the most hurtful things that we can say to one another or to say to other people is is that we understand why you're suffering or that that God is doing this because you did that. That's not what we're saying this morning. We don't always know why God is allowing this or that or what he is up to. In fact, most of the time, we don't know exactly what he's up to. But, Are there times when he is working in our lives to train us? Now, now if you're here this morning and you don't consider yourself a Christian um, yet, and and maybe you're here with a friend or with a parent or with a spouse, and and you're just kind of checking this whole thing out, and and you might be thinking, I don't really consider myself a Christian. I don't even necessarily know if I believe in this whole church God thing yet, um, much less viewing God as my Father But even if that's you this morning, I I think there's something here for you as well. And I I think that's this, that that all of us at one point or another have to deal with suffering in our lives. Every one of us experiences difficulty, hardship. Um, All of us, no matter what our our background, whether Christian or not, have to answer the question of why do we suffer? How do we make sense of suffering and pain in our lives? And so this morning, I I hope that you'll see part of the way that Christians think about this. um, The ways that Christians think about how suffering uh, and hardship can work in our lives. Well, in chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews, and the Hebrews uh, letter that we're looking at, it's a sermon that was written down and then circulated as a letter. And the author introduced a metaphor as a race. And that's what Tom, who was with us last week, he walked us through this. The author focused on our role in the race last week of of training for the race, laying aside every weight and sin. And then this week, the author shows us God's role, his role in training us and and discipling us, disciplining us for the race You see, not only is God's discipline, his training and instruction, something that we have to endure, this picture actually shows us, this passage actually shows that this is something that's good for us. In fact, its goodness is such that it's better to be disciplined by God than to be satisfied by anything else. Let me say that again. What we're going to see in this text is that it's better to be disciplined, it's better to be trained, instructed by God And to be satisfied by anything else. Can that really be true? Well, that's what we're going to try to find out this morning. That's what we have to work with. So as we look at this passage, we're going to see four things. First, we're going to see what discipline is and what it isn't. And then we're going to see what discipline means and also what it can't mean. Then what discipline is for. And then finally, why it is better. So, so what it is and what it isn't, uh, what it means and, and what it can't mean, then what it's for and why it's better. So first we see what discipline is, and as importantly, what it isn't. You see, the people that the author was originally writing to, these various Christians who were living in the first century, 2,000 years ago, they were facing um, persecution in the past, and it's likely that their experience of, of hardship and persecution was only going to intensify in the future. And so you notice what he writes to them in verses 5 and 7, and 5 through 7 in this text. It's on page 1009 in your pew Bibles. Again, if you have that open, take a look at it. He reminds them. He says, have you... Forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. It says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. You see, he reminds them, he says, don't forget about the exhortation, the encouragement that was given to you as sons and daughters. And then he quotes, this is a passage that he's quoting from the Old Testament, from the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 3. And it's in Proverbs chapter 3 here in this text that 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 word discipline first appears. And you see it, it, this word for discipline, it's always forward-looking. It's both corrective and instructive. In fact, this word in other contexts is translated training or instruction. The Lord trains the one He loves. And sometimes with gentle nudges and other times with a firm hand. Either way, it's God training us. It's His instruction, His discipline. That's what discipline is. But but here's what it isn't. And like I said, this is almost as important as understanding what it is, especially with a concept like this. You see, if you are a believer, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior— then the troubles, the hardships, the difficulties that come into your life, they are never God's punishment. Let me say that again. If you are a believer, if you have trusted Christ, then the hardship and the suffering that have come into your life are never God's punishment. You see, punishment is punitive while discipline is restorative. If you follow Christ, God's punishment for all of your sins has already been poured out on Christ on the cross. He has received all of God's wrath for you. That's why the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God has no wrath left for you if you are in Christ. Jesus experienced it all for you. God will never punish his children, making them pay for their sins. That's the good news of the gospel, but he will discipline us. He will train us. He will instruct us. Now, does this mean that every time we are experiencing hardship or suffering that God is disciplining us in the sense of correcting us? That's the next question we have to answer, and again, the answer is, is no, not at all. In the Bible, there are many examples of people who experience suffering that clearly is not correction in their lives. Like like Job for instance. Job is a classic Old Testament story. In the book of Job throughout declares over and over and over again that Job was blameless, that he hadn't done anything to bring the suffering on himself that he experienced. Jesus is the supreme example of someone who suffered that wasn't as a result of, of the need of correction or discipline. He was perfect in every way. So then the question is this, how do I know when my suffering and hardship is discipline, is correction, and when it's just part of living in a broken and messed up world where awful things happen? How do you know the difference? Well, honestly, in most cases, you probably can't know. I mean, there might be some situations where it's clear. I mean, for example, I mean, obviously, if, if, let's say, if you drive drunk and you get arrested and your license revoked, it's like, okay, well, that's a clear one-to-one kind of correlation between something I've done and some sort of corrective consequences that have taken place in my life. But in the vast majority of the time, we simply don't know why we are suffering. Is it corrective? Is it, is it just stuff that's happening in the world? What we can say is this all suffering is because of sin. Suffering exists in the world because of sin. But let me say this all suffering is because of sin, but not all of your suffering is because of your sin. Let me repeat that again. All suffering exists in the world because sin exists in the world, but not all of your suffering is the result of your sin. Sometimes, we are just caught in the mess of a broken world. And yet, if we understand discipline as training, both in the negative and the, in the positive sense, then we can be certain that all things, in all things, God is always training us to run better. And that's why it says in, in verse 7, and I actually I think the NIV even makes it clear, it says, endure hardship as discipline. Endure hardship as discipline. Can you know if every instance of hardship or suffering in your life is God's discipline? You probably can't know that for sure. But you can endure it as training, as discipline. Embrace it as that. The passage doesn't say every hardship is discipline, but it says endure every hardship as if it is discipline. If it is God's training in your life, See, not all suffering is corrective, but all suffering can be formative. Not all suffering is corrective, but all suffering can be formative. So here's the first bit of application on this. When trials come, when suffering comes in your life, instead of just bearing them or running from them or making assumptions about them, what if we instead began by asking the question, God, what are you up to? What are you, what are you trying to do in my, in my life through this? And he, and he may not tell you. In fact, he, he probably won't give you a lot of clarity on that question. But just by asking the question, God, what are, what are you doing in this moment of hardship, in this moment of suffering? What, what might you be trying to teach me? It just repositions the whole thing to be trained by whatever it is. Is he correcting you, something that you've done wrong, or or is he simply training you? Either way, don't waste your pain. God is teaching you to run with endurance. And I think there's, this is where we, we fail to do this. I think there's a few ways that we fail to do this. First of all, we, we waste our pain um, by trying to make it lighter or heavier. If you look at verse 5, it says, My son, do not regard the discipline of the Lord lightly. That we brush it off. Sometimes we just ignore it. We, we just assume our sufferings mean nothing and we unintentionally refuse to be trained by them. We, we don't take it, we take it lightly. We don't take it seriously. Or on the other hand, the passage also says we, we make it heavier. It says, nor be wearied when reproved by the Lord. We make it heavier than it, than it should be. We assume that God is punning us, punishing us out of anger rather than disciplining us out of love. And, and also then in those moments we're, we're refusing to be trained by it. So don't make assumptions about your struggle, yet watch to see how God is at work, because He's always working, and He's rarely only doing one thing. It's better to be disciplined by God than to be satisfied by anything else. So, so, okay, so now we've seen what discipline is, and importantly, what it isn't. So what it is, is it's training, it's instruction, it's correction. It isn't punishment for sin, But now we need to look at what does discipline mean? And and also, again, just as importantly, what it can't mean. And we we see this in the next few verses. If you look at verses 7 through 9, it says, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which you have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? You see, God's discipline first and foremost means that we are his sons and daughters. His discipline means that we are his sons and daughters. It means that we have been adopted into his family. That when we experience his discipline, it isn't the fact that he's rejecting us. It's actually a confirmation that that he's invited us in, that he's welcomed us, that he's adopted us as his children. Uh, so you see this a theology of, of, of sonship, of being adopted as a son or a daughter of God, this is vital to understanding our suffering. In fact, it's hard to make sense of it apart from a theology of adoption. You see, if if, we're, if in our suffering we assume that God is absent and uncaring, then, then we'll become despairing. But in fact, the opposite thing is happening. In those hardships, in those trials, when God is disciplining us, it's actually evidence of your relationship with him. Only the loved, only the adopted, only the sons are disciplined. The daughters are disciplined. His children are disciplined. Only those who belong to him have any hope that their pain means something more, that it has a greater purpose in mind. You see, God's discipline is is evidence of our relationship with him. It's evidence of his love for us you ever thought about that before? It's actually evidence of God's love for us. It means that we're his children. So that's what it means. It means that we're his children, but what can it mean? If his discipline means that we're his children, what can't it mean? Well, it can't mean that he doesn't love us. I want you to hear that clearly, that when you experience suffering and hardship as a follower of Jesus, the one thing that it can't mean is that he doesn't love you. I think Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, is brilliant on this. He points out that because Jesus, God's very own son, died on the cross for us, the one thing that suffering and hardship and discipline can't mean is that God doesn't love me. We may not know the answer. We may not know why we're suffering, but we know what the answer is not. It can't be that he doesn't love us because he can't be that that he's detached or he's unconcerned about our condition because he has come right into the midst of us and he took all of our suffering on himself. So God's discipline means that we're his children and it can't mean that he doesn't love us. I love how Pastor uh, Eugene Peterson paraphrases these verses in the message. Just, Just listen to this. Verses seven through nine again in the message. He says, God is educating you. That's why you must never drop out. He's treating you as his dear children. This trouble you're in isn't punishment, it's training, the normal experience of children. Only irresponsible parents leave their children to fend for themselves. Would you prefer an irresponsible God? We respect our own parents for training and not spoiling us. So why not embrace God's training? So we can truly live. I think Eugene nails it. That's exactly it. So, so here's another step. When you experience hardship, when you experience suffering and trials, ask God, God, what would you help me to do here? Would you, would you help me to recognize your love because there's times in those moments of suffering and hardship where God seems absent and, and he doesn't seem to be answering our prayers when it's hard to sense his love. So in those moments, say, say, God, I, I know that you love me. Help me to sense your love. Help me to trust you in the midst of this. Help me to endure this hardship as discipline. I don't know what you're up to, but help me to endure it as discipline. Help me to know your love through this. How often... I think to myself, God, if, if only I could experience you, if only I could feel your love. <laughs> and rarely do I think moments of hardship are those moments that, that I should be looking for that. But, but maybe it's in those moments of difficulty that we should start looking for it. Maybe instead we should start praying that we experience his, his training, his correction, his discipline more often. For example, if you're, if you're trapped in sin, and this may seem totally counterintuitive, but, I, but I'm going to say it anyway. If you're trapped in sin and, and you feel like, I just can't get out of this, there's this thing, it's, it's, it's got a hold of me. And maybe it, maybe it's pornography, an illicit relationship, uh, alcoholism, cheating at school, and, and you feel like, I just can't stop. I'm, I'm wrapped up in this thing and no one knows and I'm hiding and I'm afraid and yet I, I'm, I just can't, but I don't know how to, to tell anyone about this and, and I'm scared of what would happen if they did find out. I want you to try this. Try praying that you would get caught. What? <laughs> try praying that you would get caught. Pray that, that, that your wife would walk in, that, that you would get stopped for a DWI, that, that your teacher would see you. Pray that you would get caught And I know that seems so counterintuitive, but if if God can train you in those moments that he can rescue you out of that, then the best thing is for you actually to get caught. As a parent, one of the things I want to start praying for for Lucy is that as she grows up and and begins to to make mistakes, that that she would get caught. That when she does wrong, she wouldn't get away with it. That, That God would be merciful and let her sins find her out. That, that she wouldn't get away with it. Not not because I want to see her suffer, but because I don't want to see her suffer something greater. Pray that God would do whatever it takes to get your attention. Even a severe mercy. I love the old hymn that says, Oh, make, thine, make me thine forever, and should I fainting be? That is, should I ever be tempted to quit? Should I ever fainting be? Lord, let me never, never outlive my love to Thee. The, the, the hymn writer is saying, God, take my life before I walk away from you, before I fall so far into sin I, I could never come back. Do whatever it takes to show me your love, even if it means severe mercy in my life. Now, I know all of that might seem crazy. <laughs> it even seems a little crazy to me. I don't know if I want to pray that prayer. But it's only because I don't, it's only because we don't really think our sins are that bad. We don't really think that they would actually destroy us you see, unless you believe that your sins actually have the power to wreck not only your life, but the lives of everyone around you, then you will miss out on the experience of God's love. So we've seen what discipline is. that It's, it's training. It's correction. Uh, we've seen what it means. It means that we are God's beloved children. But what is discipline for? What is training for what is the goal of all of this? Why does God allow all of this in our lives? What's the point of it all? And we see this in the, in the final two verses of our passage, in verses 10 and 11. It says, For they, our, our earthly fathers, our earthly parents, disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But He, God, our Heavenly Father, disciplines us for our good, that we might share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see, God disciplines us for our good so that we might share in His holiness. And notice the author is clear here that that doesn't mean it doesn't hurt He says all of it is painful at the time, but in the end it yields this peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So it it does hurt, and sometimes the pain almost seems unbearable. It probably seems at times that it's more than we can even take. But the end result is this, that we become the creatures that God made us to be. Now I think most of us, when we hear the word holiness, this is what the author says the goal is, that we would share in his holiness I think for most of us, including me, when we hear the word holiness, we don't immediately think of, yes, that's something I want. Usually we think of something more of like a holier-than-thou, a self-righteous person. Um, Or or I think a picture that comes to my mind sometimes when I think of of someone who's really holy is kind of like a a monk up on the mountain, sort of praying for 12 hours a day, totally disconnected from the, the real life, the real world. But this is not... What the picture of sharing in God's holiness is this word is about wholeness. It's about completeness, about joy. It's about existing in the way that God always intended for you to be, without fear, without insecurity or anger or selfishness. And for me, no one captures the process or the goal. Of discipline better than than our good friend C.S. Lewis, who you know that I love. Um, And this passage is a little bit longer, but I think it's worth reading all of it. This is from Mere Christianity. This is how Lewis puts it. He says, imagine yourself as a living house, and God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping up the leaks in the roof and so on, And, and you knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently he starts knocking the house about in ways that hurt abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? And Lewis says the explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace and he intends to come and live in it himself. Lewis continues, The command to be perfect, to be holy, is not just an idealistic sentiment, nor is the command impossible to do. He is going to make us into creatures who can obey that command. He said it in the Bible that we are gods, and he is going to make good on his words. And this is, I love Lewis's picture of holiness here. He says, He will make the feeblest and filthy of us into a creature so dazzling and radiant and immortal, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power, delight, and goodness. And Lewis concludes, and he says, The process will be long and in parts very painful. But that is what we were in for. Nothing less. He meant what he said. God is making you into a palace that he intends to come to live in. And sometimes that renovation process is deeply painful. But the end goal of a creature pulsating through with light and joy and wisdom and goodness that reflects back the glory of God is so worth it. That's what discipline is for. It's to make us into creatures that share in the very life and joy of God himself forever. So in these moments of difficulty, ask God, how do I need to grow? How can I make, how can this experience make me holy? How can this help me to become more like you Maybe it's patience in my loneliness. Maybe it's sacrifice in a difficult marriage. It's trust in the midst of difficult news, humility through failure, dependence through disappointment, endurance through depression. Remember in the midst of this, God may not be correcting you, but he is always training you. He's using whatever difficult circumstances you face to grow you, to train you, to bring you to the place of sharing in his holiness, in his very life and joy and delight. Okay, so if all of that is true, if all that's actually true, is it really better? Is it really better than our sin? Is it really better than, than experiencing comfort? Is it really better to be disciplined by God than to be trained by anything else? You see, God never minimizes our pain. He never sweeps it under the rug, and, and yet I can't think of a, an, another religion that has a more realistic And a more hopeful understanding of suffering than Christianity. In in, in Islam, for example, God cares very little for for humans in their pain. But in the end, if you've you've devoted your life to Allah, you get sort of the consolation prize of of heaven and, and maybe 40 virgins. In Buddhism... Pain is is really an, an illusion. It's something that you've got to lose yourself to lose the pain. That if you absorb and lose your personality, if you absorb yourself into the into the natural order, and then pain, the illusion of pain fades away. In, in naturalism, suffering is pointless. It, it's really, how can you call suffering if, if all of life is meaningless? But in Christianity, God sees our pain and he weeps. He suffers with us, and he promises to make something beautiful out of it. Not a consolation prize, but an actual redemption, an actual restoration of everything that was lost. As I reflected on this passage this week and studied the text, I couldn't help but think of another um, C.S. Lewis book, one that was written for children um, called The Horse and His Boy. And, and actually this book talks quite a bit about suffering and pain and, and how God is present in that. And maybe it seems like a heavy book for children, but it's one of, the, it's one of my favorite of the Chronicles of Narnia. And, and if you don't know the stories or you've never read those books, uh, that's okay. As long as you understand that Aslan, the, the great lion in the story, um, this is a book with talking animals. Some people like those, some people don't. I like talking animal books. Um, Aslan, the great lion, is the Christ figure. And toward the end of the book the heroes are discovering that so much of their difficulty along the way was created by Aslan himself. And at the time, it had been terrifying and brutal, but it had all been for their good. And at the end of the book, this is one of my favorite scenes, Aslan meets Hwin, one of the horses. If You can just picture this, a horse meeting this huge lion, how terrifying that must have been. And this is what Lewis writes. So when, though, then when, though shaking all over, gave a strange little neigh and trotted across to the lion. Please, she said, you're so beautiful. You may eat me if you like. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. It's one of my favorite scenes in all of the Chronicles of Narnia because it captures this, that that I'd rather be disciplined, I'd rather experience suffering at at the hand of God than be satisfied by anything else because he's going to make us into the creatures that we were always intended to be. If you trust Christ, if you cling to him, then all of the suffering in your life is no longer meaningless. It becomes training. It's not punishment, but it becomes training. It becomes formation. It becomes correction so that you can become the person that God is making you to be, that He always created you to be. That's the goal of all this. That's why it's better. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as I look out at those gathered here this morning, I only know a small fraction of the stories in this room. And yet, as I look at this, fraction of the stories that I know, I know there is so much pain that sits in this room. Pain of, of, of aging parents, pain of infertility, pain of, of illness, of sickness, of financial hardship, pain of, of of not having a job, of not having meaningful employment, pain of of being single and longing to be married, pain of being in a marriage that is so painful and broken, the pain of a marriage that is dissolving. All of those situations exist here in this room, and there's many, many more. And Father, I pray that you would help in every one of those situations where we, a congregation, are grieving and where we're feeling hurt, where we're feeling pain, that you would help us to see how you're training us in the midst of that, how you're shaping us, how you're forming us. Help us to endure, that we would look to Jesus who endured these things, and that we would not lose heart.